welcome to the Bad Vibes Club podcast, brought to you with the kind support of the Arts Council. Damn it. Arts Council England, they're not called the Arts Council, are they? Thanks for uh, tuning in, or downloading, or listening online, or whatever you're doing. And thanks so much um, to everyone who's listened to the to Joe and Sam's podcast. So that's the, the last interview that we've done, and kind of the first, the first real podcast that we've done of this series. Um, and just being so kind about it. And the, uh, there was an accompanying article on Corridor 8 magazine, and people have just been retweeting it and being saying really nice things about it. And I really, really enjoyed writing it and um, working with Lauren and, and Lara from Corridor 8 on making that happen and Joe and Sam as well. Yeah, I really appreciate all the all the good stuff people had to say. Um, if you haven't heard that, obviously you can go back and listen to it. And yeah, so what am I doing? I'm drinking coffee. It's cold. It's May. I'm a little bit hungover. Really had a bit of a boozy weekend. Had a wedding and then I went to a barbecue. But anyway, that's okay. We're, we're working through the hangover and we'll be... We'll be fine by about 3pm, I feel. Uh, we've got some exciting things coming up. Beth Bramich is going to do some interviews for us, so she's going to go out and talk to some artists as well. Uh, we've got our our first event of the Bad Vibes Club season coming up on June the 2nd and June the 3rd, and that's at Open School East in Margate. So if you go to Open School East, go to their website, um, you can see all the details for that event. Um, we're going to be doing a study day on the Friday, which you have to sign up for, and then we're going to be doing an open day of uh, performances presentations and videos on the saturday and that should be really fun and fingers crossed for really good weather because that'll be really lovely down there by the coast but it'll also just be just before the um election so it's about the politics of negative emotions uh, and the kind of productive states that those those negative emotions can bring about so it should be really interesting so come down to that if you can Otherwise, I'll record some of the talks and maybe put them out on here and, and definitely on the website. Uh, back to this week's podcast. Uh, so this time I'm speaking to Erica Scorty. So she's an artist born in Athens. She's currently based in London uh, and Athens kind of moves between the two. She's exhibited recently at Microscope Gallery in New York. Fact, the Photographer's Gallery, Hayward Gallery. She's done performances recently at Whitechapel Gallery, South London Gallery, the Royal College of Art, Chelsea College of Art. Uh, the Goethe Institute in London, the Sandberg Institute in Amsterdam, Goldsmiths College, the Dutch Art Institute, Transmedial, ICA, the Irish Museum of Modern Art, um, and the South Bank Centre. And her recent shows have been the Big Bang Data at Somerset House, Trace Programme at Flow Skate Park, and Dark Archives, which is a solo commission at... Ah, uh, what are you called? Het... Het... New Institute, Rotterdam. Sorry about that het new institute i can't pronounce your name but essentially my point is is that erica is doing loads of work she's everywhere she's doing loads of great stuff all the time but i managed to pin her down uh, for just over an hour back in the deep dark recesses of february when this studio was even colder than it is now um, and we had an interview but we also had a bit of a catch-up uh, me and erica met a few years ago in 2013 when we were both commissioned by field broadcast to make some work for something called the internet i don't know if you've heard of the internet it's quite um quite a big thing these days and that year was the same year that erica was doing a long-term project called life in adwords where she would email her daily diary to her gmail account and then she'd kind of perform back to camera the list of suggested advertising keywords that came up out of her personal diaries so even then you could really get the textual feel of erica's work where this personal stuff and the digital stuff they kind of collapse and then she 
uses that new quality of not quite data but not quite information and turns it into a kind of poetry i think she's been developing this way of working ever since and you can you can actually hear in the interview that we talk about a recent project she did for the welcome collection in london where she worked with a coder to produce a twitter bot um, and that takes content as well actually from her personal diaries but other sources as well and it produces these collaged poems in response to the twitter users who follow uh, the bot Erica writes a lot for performance, also essays and other things to be read. You can, If you Google Erica's name, you'll find incredible amounts of info, which is very useful for someone like me who's doing an interview with her. She's incredibly articulate about many things, but usefully for me, she has lots of interesting things to say about her approach to being an artist and the work she makes. So I think you're really going to enjoy this episode. It's great. I had a great time chatting to her. We talk about loads of different bits of her work, as well as her growing up in Athens and her family. We talk about self-help and self-care and the difference between those two things. We talk about holidays and we talk about meditation. We talk about how she uses her life in her work. And Erica also, right at the end, kind of talks about a piece of work that's in development um, and future things that are coming up. The interview, like I mentioned, is just over an hour and we start off in the middle of a conversation about the possibility of moving away from London. Okay, enjoy. Cheers. Just now I was in Berlin just for a couple of days and one of my friends was like, wait, explain to me why when you're travelling all the time you would choose London as your base. (laughs) And it's like, "Mm, yeah, when you put it like that, you know, it's true. It doesn't kind of quite make sense. But you've been here for a long time. I've been here for a long time. And like last year, I was spending a lot of time in Athens and also just a lot of time traveling. And mm. I think it's just really difficult. Like, uh, you know, this is just something I've faced now for at least two, three years of like, how do you how do you make a life that's not just like with a suitcase in hand? And mm. if you are, if you have got that way of working and, you know, there is one answer to that, which is like, stop working like that mm. or find another way. Yeah, I saw in your. I saw. I was just obviously been like reading interviews and stuff and texts you've written, and in maybe an interview you mentioned that I didn't know this at all. But before you did the Emres at St Mm. Martin's, you were doing lots of art education work. Yeah, yeah. Which obviously way more location based. You know, you go somewhere and you work with a group of people. You can't take that with you. How long were you doing that for? Um, oh god, years. So I would have started in like two thousand and four, I suppose, because I set up in business with the Prince's Trust. Oh, doing that okay. as my business um and i think i officially got on the books in like 2005 that was when i kind of started in business but i was doing it from 2004 until easily like uh 2010 2011 was that like a conscious a kind of political choice wanting to work with kind of outside of the normal art world or was it something you fell into i think when at that age i wasn't thinking it, uh, you know, it wasn't exactly a political decision, but at the same time, it was something that I really, I, I wanted to do it. Like that's what I wanted. You know, I wanted to work in that educational sphere. I do think that I, it's, some of it came down to my own background of not kind of. I, I didn't come from a background where doing art was something that you did. Mm. So I think I had that as I, I, I did have that feeling of like one, wanting to be able to work with people who might not have felt that. that art was something that was for them um so there was something a little bit there kind of identifying a little bit with that feeling of like people who if they were set to tell their parents i'm going to study art would be like what and when you say your background do you do you mean your family yeah well more like growing up in greece my particular yeah i mean it's actually not even my particular family i mean they're they're you know very open-minded my mum like studied music it's just that like a middle-class greek family 
it's not whereas like a middle class English family I mean you know your parents wouldn't be like horrified if you said you wanted to be an artist I don't know probably some of them would but in Greece it, like it's it, even at a similar kind of class level like you would still be your parents would be like but you need a job right yeah, yeah. You, you know you, you you're gonna have to how are you gonna live there's no way that you could be an artist really in Greece yeah unless you were doing something else you know and it's like well what would you do it's not a it doesn't make sense as a as a like life role. But then how did you end up studying art if that kind of didn't seem like an option when you were younger? Because I mean I just really I really really wanted to do it but I had kind of understood that like I couldn't because you know how was I going to live? Um but then once I came to England I think it was just like all my friends were at art school and then and then I went on this uh, I I hitchhiked to Morocco. Um, with a friend of mine and kind of like met somebody along the way, this woman who's like, oh, you've got to follow your dreams. And I mean, it really was that cheesy. Um, <laughs> and then I came back and I was like, right, I'm quitting. So, Do you still know this woman, the follow your dreams? Woman? No, no. I mean, I can't even really remember. I know that she was a milliner. So She's a what? A milliner, That's like a hat maker. <laughs> yeah. And that was her dream? I guess so, yeah. There was something along those lines. And then I got back and I remember having to like tell my parents, I'm going to quit chemistry. Oh, so you really didn't, sad. So you didn't choose to study art. No, you started something else. No, I did physics, chemistry, and maths what? at A level, and I, yeah, because I was also like uh, that. That's the other thing with my particular background is that I was a scholarship kid, which means that I was on an academic scholarship. Um, so, is that a school you mean? Yeah. And that meant you were what, like studying at a boarding school or a? No, no, or? boarding schools don't exist in Greece. Oh, really? fa- no, of course not. The fa- I don't think the family situation would allow for boarding schools. Right, because it's so tight. You're it, like, yeah, you it would be weird. I, I don't know. I mean, maybe maybe there are some that I, I've never heard of, but I've never. Heard, they're, they're not in Athens. If they are, if they exist, they're not in Athens. Yeah. Or maybe, uh, or if they are, then they're a hundred percent an English or other foreign yes, country like enterprise. An <laughs> yeah. Thing, yeah. It would not be a Greek thing. So, the, as in the Greek thing is to keep your children very close to you. Yeah, yeah. I think it would. I think it would be. I, I don't know. I, could, I would find it because there isn't a tradition of it here. Where uh, um, in, in Greece, whereas I guess there is here. Mm-hmm. There is a tradition. Yeah, a really distant family. <laughs> well, or just that you know, pe- pe- parents sending their their kids to go yeah. to boarding school because it's like good for their education. Or I think it's I like. Know. I mean, this is obviously a mixture of things, but it's also linked to colonial stuff because if you're away in a, well if you were away right, in the colony yeah. then you send your kid back to England to mm. get, so to get their my, education and then you could come back yeah no yeah. that's true yeah my, I actually thought of that dad had a weird childhood where my grandpa my, my grandpa is actually French but he mm-hmm. moved over here and worked with uh, English company so he was in French speaking Africa a lot oh, right. so my dad was in like a boarding school in uh, wherever somewhere in Somerset or something mm. and then he would fly out to wherever like uh, Morocco and then they moved to uh, Argentina and stuff so my mm. uncle was born in Argentina and stuff oh, right. but they would have this like very very English education mm. but abroad or no no so they, they got sent back here they got and for yeah. holidays they'd spend three months like playing in like Buenos Aires you know oh, so this yeah. weird mix of like you know being able to speak several languages but also being like not you know being just like like, for example, they're really funny about the French, even though we are French. Mm. But, like, because they were brought up in English boarding schools, they're, like, always making jokes about the French. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because the English are always making jokes about the French. <laughs> That's funny, yeah. But so if, so if, firstly, choosing art study is quite a strange thing, and secondly, um, being away from your family is quite 
strange. How do your parents feel about you now being an artist and living in a different place? Well, I think the living in a different place thing is kind of... Um, it was more expected because we, me and my sister, both both half English, you know, ah, as, we, okay. as we were growing up. Yeah, because my mum's English. Oh, I didn't we went, know that. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. So my mum's my mum's English, and we went to, you know, we had a, we had a, an English education. So therefore, it was always expected that we would go to ah, okay. to study. It's just that you know, it's it's like I suppose the, for for parents, they don't always know if their if their kids are going to come back. Yeah. You know, a lot of my friends now, like once they get to kind of 13 above, a lot of them start going back. Oh, there's, really? there's, there's kind of like trickle back to Athens. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, but I, I think for, so for my, my parents have totally, yeah, they're totally behind me now, like mm. as, as an artist. I think it's, you know, they've understood that it, that it works. So why not? Yeah. It's just that for, you know, it just didn't, it just didn't seem viable. Whereas maybe here it kind of is, but it's still, yeah. as we know, it's still really hard. When did it, I mean, I guess there's two questions. When did it start feeling viable for you as like a whatever a, a career or or something you could do as your main activity? Mm. And when and when did it start making sense for your parents? Hmm. I think probably. Um, I think as, as soon as I was able to like survive and pay bills and and live, then it was fine. Mm. You know. So so even before when I was when I was kind of being a sole trader, like freelancing and working in education, I was still making artwork. So you know, I was getting stuff into places here and there, but it kind of um so so it was like i was making a viable i was surviving uh viably and i was an artist but i guess i was kind of more of a i was like split i was a community artist in terms of how i made my money but then i was making videos and other stuff which i wouldn't necessarily show to the kids i worked with so yeah. there was this kind of separation and then i suppose what's happened now since doing the ma or the mres is that there isn't a separation and there is good and bad in both of that so what made you decide to do the mres I think I had reached a point where, you know, I wasn't, I felt like I was kind of just, uh, my, my heart wasn't 100% still in the working with uh, the young people. And uh, that, that felt kind of wrong. It's not really, I didn't really want to be doing that. Like I could have got further up into kind of more management stuff. Like I could have started making a kind of charitable organisation or an educational something um, and being like the CEO of it and then had managers underneath me. But it's like, I didn't really want to carry on doing that. But at the same time, I'd started to not really have my heart 100% in the workshops. And and then, yeah, then it felt like, okay, well, maybe now I have to take that leap into putting my, you know, trying to find a way to make a living from my artwork itself. Yeah. But obviously, yeah, that's a that's a tricky one. <laughs> yeah. Um, so <laughs> tell us about that, Mrez, because... I, I kind of know what it is, but obviously if people listening to this might not know. It's a uh, Masters of Research and it was a kind of, it was a new course at the time. And I mean, to be cynical about it, I think it was slightly kind of dreamed up by St. Martin's because it was one of those courses which didn't require studio space. So that was good. Mm. I mean, you still paid fees, probably less than what you pay on a practice based. But it's, uh, yeah, the thing about it was that it was a non-practice based uh, MA. So it's a research MA and you don't get studio space and you you don't show your, like I didn't show my work as uh, for coursework. It was only kind of written stuff and, you know, we would like organise symposia and give, uh, present papers. It's almost like training more to be a kind of either like a film curator because it was in moving image. Yes, it was M-Res yeah. art moving image. And it was linked somehow with Lux as yeah. well? Yeah. So it was kind of, 
I mean, I think that was the big draw of the course, that it was linked to Lux, which meant that you got access to... Uh, to I mean, you didn't have access to their archive in the sense of like, oh, hey, can I turn up and look through the archive? But um, the people who'd come in and run seminars would draw from their archive and would show us stuff. And right. you were just kind of really connected to this long-standing institution and distribution network and all the people who would come through and do talks and, you know, connected to Lux. And so we were there kind of two days a week and then at St. Martin's two days a week. So it was pretty good right. from that point of view. And so was it a conscious decision to... So it's interesting because you were changing what you were doing but you're kind of focusing more on your practice but you did a theoretical anyway. yeah and then also it has this um focus on film and video mm. so were they two conscious decisions to do a theory thing based in film yeah because uh, you know what really kind of swung it for me was just before that and as i say so you know all the way since my ba i'd been making videos and some of them had got shown at quite big film festivals and but i just didn't quite understand how to kind of make the make the best of that but that's basically what my work was I was making videos um and I went and did a course at Nowhere with Ian White mm, yeah sure and you know uh, as you probably know he was really great and he was a really great teacher and it was all to do with um theatre and kind of performance as as a way to look at moving image and it was it w was completely theoretical in the sense of like we didn't come and look oh this is my work and it was just learning and watching other films and reading text and discussing and it was so good for my own work like I got so many ideas yeah you know when you're at stuff and you're going like oh, oh I want to go and make something that kind of thing which is really I think that's like that's when I when I when I have that that's when I'm really kind of excited right okay and that was what I was like well if I can get that off just like a six-week course then studying this and this being the thing that you do every day, watch films, talk about them, yeah. and then you can be making your own on the side. You don't necessarily have to be bringing them in to show to the group. Yeah, that's really interesting. Or you can do it on the side with a couple of the people who you get chatting to, but it's not like you are bringing your films. Yeah. And so it seemed, you know, that seemed, having had this kind of experience of it, it seemed like it would work for me, um, which, you know, maybe it wouldn't for, for everyone in terms of a, as an artist but I guess because certainly back then I was doing a lot of writing and a lot of reading then of course as you get busier and busier then, then you have less time to write which is really fucking annoying but yeah and is that like I when did we meet I guess we met probably when you were doing the MRES yeah I think so right when we did that um we did the field broadcast thing that's it um and at that point you were I think you were already doing like Life in AdWords. Mm -hmm. So you, so the internet and kind of personal data were already, a, I guess, the central part of your work. Mm. When did that, when did that actually start kind of entering into what you did? I think probably, well, you know, as with all of these things, it's a kind of slow thing. I'd been collecting and using kind of found and appropriated text and footage from various places, including the internet, without yeah. it necessarily being like that was my main point of research but I became quite disillusioned uh, with the idea of just quoting and just kind of uh, taking other people's stuff mm. so essentially with appropriation and this was kind of off the back of a lot of that stuff like Nicholas Burrio's kind of post-production and the idea of kind of remix culture and um, I really started to kind of question how that lets you the artist off the hook in some way because you're just kind of quoting from the culture and maybe remixing it and doing something different with it sure but how are you reflecting on your own position in it so I started to kind of put myself in my own work more and more 
just a little bit by little bit. So like I did a piece where, which you might have seen called Screen Tears, where I was crying and then I, I recorded it onto a DVD and went into lots of different electronic stores and played it on their big widescreen TVs and filmed it. I haven't seen that. So oh, I'll send That's you a link amazing. to it. So it's kind of like, that's looking at like the public display and sharing of emotion and how that's codified within a very particular public space, which is, yeah. uh, but not just the public space of like Curry's or Dixon's, but also um, TV as an institution. Yeah. And what is, you know, how is it, how is like female emotion particularly played out, uh, you know, in the context of TV and reality TV and daytime shows and all of that. That feels like um, a very particular idea dear because i guess now the, the the immediate thing to think of would be to somehow get that video use it to interrupt someone's kind of like internet experience mm, yes but when when did you make that well this is it 2008 okay so it's so like, it's like just just as youtube is like hitting its kind of or it's around yeah so it's kind of that's the thing so if you look at it then that it's like the public space there maybe was more to do with the tv and when i say mm. public space i mean more in the sense of what was the mass medium it, yeah okay it was the internet as well but it was kind of tv was still there whereas i think now we're in a different situation what is our mass medium is probably more the internet or yeah. Facebook, yeah. or, you know, and the way we use our phones and devices influences much more how we share information and how we receive it. Yeah. But um, it, I guess it's always tricky in these things, though, like that I, I, I always want to avoid a kind of like techno determinism in the sense of like, oh, now that we've got iPhones, everybody makes work like this, or like now yeah. because of the internet, now we all experience information like this. It's more that there's a kind of history of these things, of these institutions, devices, networks platforms and you know we both change we you know like our interactions with them change them but they also do obviously have some kind of effect on us too yeah. you know and in very simple this is like a very simple analogy but i was just um installing a piece of work today and it was a video and it's shown on a sony cube which is an analog yeah. device and i was talking to the tech and he was explaining it. there's just like different levels of quality that you can that you can transfer the signal so there's like whatever coaxial and then rgb and then scar and and they're all different levels of quality and, and i was kind of thinking i just thought analog was just analog and once digital came along it your choice was between digital but actually and there was a well of course there's just loads a of gradient di- yeah, like, and there's just yeah. loads of different ways and different reasons that you would use that kind of technology and yeah it's it my point being that like once we're now at the stage where it's very hard to imagine another mass media mm ever having been as as um, dominant as the internet is now but obviously there was television like even up until 2008 or whatever yeah that was easily the biggest way of disseminating information and then there will be something else in the future that isn't the internet and then at that point probably the internet and all of the things kind of connected to it won't seem like technology anymore because there yeah, is that as well that they say like you know we don't think of the radio as being like tech but it is i mean if we if we're thinking in terms yeah. of some kind of mediating, some kind of communi- communication uh, medium, which goes through some kind of device or some kind of interface. I mean, of course it is. But, but so, we don't think of it anymore as one. So that places your work in a kind of interesting position because you mention infrastructural critique mm. a lot in some of the texts mm. that I've been reading. So I guess infrastructure is that which is invisible to us. So like, yeah, like uh, whatever, like 
parts of the internet are infrastructural, mm. but a lot of it is like user experience, very much like what we interact with. Mm. And that seems to be the place upon which your work exists. It's the bit where the user meets the mm. internet. Mm. So how does that work in, t- in terms of critique? Because, and I think this is like a real uh, like strength of your work, is that you're always using things that are immediately accessible to any, any one of your yeah. audience, right? That is that has generally been true, and this is one of the things I usually say is that I'm interested in working um, mostly with the the media that are accessible at any at, at any point in time. Not just accessible in terms of like you may actually have one yourself, but accessible kind of conceptually. So you don't have to kind of explain to somebody what an iPhone is, because at the same time, you know, it's important to point out that like not everybody can afford an iPhone, and actually, uh, you know, having an iPhone with a contract and data connected to it costs a lot of money, and it's actually not it's not some kind of egalitarian medium. Mm. And um, also, there are many parts of, of the world, you know, even to an extent in Athens, where not everybody is connected to the internet at all yeah. times in the way that we are here and in let's say New York and other kind of um, western uh, cities but at the same time the 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 use of these kind of uh, these networks is conceptually accessible to to most to almost anyone so there's something interesting there in terms of what is an artist doing that's any different mm. if we're all using the same kind of tools and the same kind of platforms what is an artist doing that's any different um that's definitely where my work was, but I think I, I think at the moment, particularly with some of the work I did last year, where I worked with a coder. I was just going to ask you about that. Yeah, there's a little bit of a change there because not everybody can have a coder, so and not everybody is... necessarily even understands how that works, including me. <laughs> so, so this is Empathy Deck, yeah. which is for the Welcome Collection. Do you want to just say what that project was? Yeah, so I mean, Empathy Deck was the first time that I worked with a coder, and it is a live, responsive uh, Twitter bot which it follows people, um, once people follow it, it follows them back and it kind of um, scans their tweets for particular words which I've weighted and if it finds one of the words that it can respond to, then it attempts to make uh, a unique uh, empathy card. So it's like an image. Basically, you get sent an image and it's to you and it's unique and it's based on what you said. So it's kind of responsive. It's like a kind of proxy friend or it's a kind of proxy version of me that attempts to, uh, you know, that gives you this little kind of uh, gift, almost like a kind of thought for the day type thing, which draws on uh, my diary texts, plus a whole collection of um, self-help and um, like self-knowledge literatures. So how, I mean, not how in the sense of the coding, because I guess both of us are probably in the dark. Yeah. (laughs) But like, um, what, so it's drawing from... Like what? Just one huge document full of your text and all these other people's text. So there's two. There's two texts. There's oh, the kind okay. of primary text and the secondary texts. The primary text is the diary. So the way the, the reason it's the primary text is because that is what the the um, the, the responsiveness is is kind of uh, based on. Okay. So it's only going to respond to things that that people say that are also in the diary. Right. And then those have been I, I've been through all of the kind of stems, like the words get stemmed into into kind of um, I don't know quite how to explain stemming, but it it means that like th- there's a kind of part of the word which could relate to different words. So like happiness or happy or happily or happiest or happy could all have the same stem yeah sure but that word happy would need to be in the diary for it to respond to it yeah so the primary text is based off that and basically if it it finds one of the words that you've said and then it knows that it can find that in the diary 
and then it will use that bit of text first and then take something else from the secondary text rather than the other way around. And then what about the images that are behind it? So the images are um, kind of... Last year I was working quite a lot with uh, collages, which, again, people don't always realise that I work quite physically as well because of maybe what has circulated of my work but I was doing a lot of um, collages again I was kind of interested in in quite a lo-fi medium almost like something that you would do like as a kid or again like in an educational workshop one of the things we used to do a lot was uh, mood boards Mm. so they kind of that got that kind of vibe except they don't have they're not actual necessarily pictures of things they're kind of collages but they've got a slightly art therapeutic or like rainy Sunday afternoon uh, kind of vibe to them rather than um, really kind of considered artworks um, but they were I, I made them kind of card size so that would almost be like something that you'd give to people mm, okay. and I'd uh, and in fact it was the idea for, for, for making them like that came from the fact that for a couple of years I'd been making people cards like Christmas cards and other cards in that way so they were kind of they they they've been kind of transferred into the deck, and those are the cards. So those are the backgrounds. Right. Okay, yeah. Some of them are kind of stylized, like some of them are filtered, some of them are black and white. So within the actual deck, there are four sets. Right. Okay. And they've got four different formats uh, in terms of color, font, uh, positioning, and but also the way that the text is generated. So some of them are couplets. All oh, right. Okay. They rhyme. Um, some of them are kind of uh, primary text, secondary text, primary text, so a little bit kind of yeah. knitted together, you know. So all of these things, this is all what I worked with the coder on. I was going to say, so how much of that is just you exactly saying to the coder, I want this done, and how much of it is you collaborating, kind of talking through what what's possible? I think it's a bit of both, because there's obviously some things where, you know, you have to be able to make, make the call, but also because if you haven't worked with it, you don't know until you've tried it out, and then they'll show you something and be like, yeah, oh yeah, that works, or like, can we have more a bit more like that, and a bit less like than that, and then there's all stuff to do with like the length, how long should it be, and mm. all of that stuff, I mean, all of that was just kind of back and forth and back and forth and like sitting with him, um, Tom Armitage, I should say, is him, Tom Armitage, um, you know, and just just testing things out and kind of tweaking, lots of tweaking. So, I mean, in in lots of your work, yeah, you've kind of talked about this like personal proxy or, or the kind of outsourced labour of, yeah. of online culture. But this is this is just a straight up technical collaboration. You're mm. sat with someone in a room, going through what you wanted to do and beta testing and this kind of yeah thing. i mean i think that's a, yeah it's a it's a good kind of connection to make there because this is this is more like yeah me working with somebody else because they've got a skill which i haven't um but there isn't something kind of maybe like emotional or personal being risked exactly in that collaboration apart from the fact that of course tom has seen my diary in quite <laughs> like he has you know yeah. i'm sure he hasn't sat there and read it but i mean i've given him it yeah so yeah. if he wanted to he could <laughs> <laughs> and also because he had to stem it all and put it all into sentences yeah not by hand obviously but i mean okay so he's he's definitely so this is an algorithmic process that he's yes okay but i mean he, he's got the text like because yeah. we would when especially at the early stages when when it was just the diary that had been put in or you know or like 
yeah. But it didn't, at the same time, I wasn't asking him to do something with it in the same way. So if you look at, let's say, the outage, mm. you know, the ghostwritten um, fictional memoir, that's quite different because there it's the whole gesture of like, the, the, the gesture I was actually interested in there was almost playing on this kind of fear of like, of breach or of, of kind of digital violation, mm. uh, which, which can be as kind of low level as like leaving your phone on the table and then you get a WhatsApp message and somebody else might see it. But r- right up to, you know, identity theft and kind of like somebody, somebody breaching your, uh, your online banking. Yeah. You know, all of those are somehow in the same kind of sphere of your devices potentially leaking and betraying you and allowing somebody else access to that kind of uh, imaginary protected interior space that lies behind the password wall or the shut laptop, you know. But so if, if the, so this is a ghost, ri- no, a ghost written memoir. A ghost written fictional memoir. Okay. That's what we called it. And it's based on data that you passed on to this yeah. writer. Yeah. As well as, obviously, because I mean, the idea was to get, I was really fascinated at the time with this idea of that, like, could there be a kind of master profile mm. that would kind of, like, this is how you appear. And, of course, as I started to do research into it, I was like, well, of course there isn't. It just depends on who's doing the looking. Mm. What lens is being used? Is it because it's for, you know, who? yeah, who's asking, essentially? And depending on who's asking, you're going to get a completely different profile every time. Um, but, and, and initially, I, I had been um, fascinated by this idea that of the kind of uh, Boris Groys quote, quote, talking about that the subject is the keeper of a secret, Mm. Uh, the holder of a password that they know but nobody else does and then it's like what would it be to give somebody that password um, but that's, which so you that, can't actually do obviously because but that sense of breach you were talking about like it's an interesting object as like a as a book the final outcome mm. the process is one thing mm. and then you have this final book which I think maybe uh, this is just sparked by reading you writing about the uh, experience of yeah. reading your own memoir yeah being quite affected by yeah. it I guess yeah, it was very affecting. But what's the... I guess there's a split there, because you're the one who experiences the breach as the artist. Yeah. But then you're also the, probably the only one who experiences it directly, at least, yes. as a reader. So then you've got this kind of strange artefact, which is the final book, which is, mm. you know, I can go and buy it. But but when I read it, what what do you think that, what do you think that I read? <laughs> Yeah, so it's a hard question. To no, no, it's a, it's, a, it's a really good question though because I mean that was the other thing that I, I really thought about at the time, and I spoke about it with John, who wrote the book. Um, you know, it's like I, I didn't want it to just be a conceptual gesture where you're like, okay, well, why should I read the book? Yeah, I've, exactly. I've heard the story. Why? What's in the book? In the same way that, let's say, you know, work like um, kind of Kenneth Goldsmiths, you could kind of say the same thing. Like, okay, I've got the I've got the concept. Why should I read it? What's in it for me? So I did want it to be something where, like, there's something in it for for the reader. Mm. Um, so that's why, you know, employing somebody to to write something that has got it it, it turns it, it becomes a story as well. There is a kind of fiction to it. Like the work itself is uh, is a work. Oh, the, the book itself is a work, yes. which kind of stands alone, and it is like that is kind of John's work. You know, yeah, that's quite strange. But it's it? also mine because yeah. he's quoted so much from my writing. But in my writing, uh, especially the more professional stuff, I've also quoted from other people. So it becomes impossible to tell um, who's who, and what uh, and what's what, and like where the authorship lies. And that that sense of kind of confusion is also part of it in a way that in more kind of straight conceptual writing, it probably isn't. Mm. Um, by doing these kind of 
actions where you where you kind of give away data is I was reading your piece about ritual and self-care mm. I wondered if there's like a what's the word like a sacrificial element mm-hmm. to giving away your, your data so that you protect yourself against some kind of like imagined mm. I don't know real breach which would I don't know I can't imagine what it would be but whatever identity theft or something mm. like that is there some kind of ritualistic element to it yeah I mean I've thought about that as well like well there's there's kind of different ways of looking at that as well which is that there is there's what 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 is that gesture of like offering yourself up you know and is it is that something whereby you almost uh take on or kind of act out people's fears in some kind of pedagogical way as well which is that like i'll take on those fears so kind of you don't have to so you you know which is it maybe there's more i mean i haven't thought this one through exactly but maybe that links more to an older idea of kind of catharsis or something where the the viewer is kind of um, there's something kind of almost cathartic through that because they don't have to do that themselves, but they can see somebody else who has in a way. So it's the kind of that, they, that there's something almost that they can kind of learn learn from that. Yeah. But at the same time, there could be a sense of which you're by giving up your identity. Let's say, like I, like I also did in um, you know in the dark archives where mm. I invited people uh, writers again to search my archives and then imagine what was missing from certain albums of photos. There could be a way in which you're kind of actually, um, it's almost like preventative medicine or something where you're taking, you're taking some of the poison, but through that, then that, then like you, you become immune to the poison in some way. There's, there's something like that, some kind of homeopathic. But what, what about you? Does it leave you kind of more cynical about uh, the effect of technology on people's relationships or mental health or does it kind of do you just think you're a bit wiser a bit more streetwise about this kind of stuff Mm, I wouldn't say that I don't know yeah no I wouldn't I wouldn't I wouldn't say I'm any kind of I don't wouldn't say I'm kind of any wiser than anybody else apart from just the fact that I've spent time thinking about it or you know um, but maybe it's more about kind of how do you I suppose this is always the thing when you're work, working with any kind of personal personal sphere is like how do you make it so it's not just like me and my stuff mm. how can you how can you work with it in a way that it's also um, says something to other people mm. and relates to their experience in some way so I mean again with the book thing it's like is it just something where it's like oh well you know you need to do one yourself and then you can get it. Or or is there still something in, in that that's, inter- yeah, that's interesting enough by itself? Yeah, I see what you mean. I guess I guess the book is a very particular one because it, it has these two lives, one which is the process, which is a very interesting process, and then one which is the yeah, the kind of pe- the text itself, which yeah. is which is what's going to live on in which a way. is what's going to live on, which is, yeah, that's quite a strange idea. Mm. I wonder I was thinking about you you said earlier that not many people know that you do kind of haptic kind of mm. you know the collages and other kind of studio work and i wonder whether the internet ends up privileging work that is made about the internet yeah maybe yeah so then like obviously the way i looked at your work was i just went on your website went on your blog i googled you mm. and then obviously that brings up all these things which are normally related to the internet mm, yeah but i mean wouldn't you you know wouldn't you look at wouldn't you research any artist's work in the same way yeah, yeah, but I guess yeah. Not all artists have these kind of like different ways of making work. Some people, mm. 
I always remember this is the first time I heard of this. There was an art, there's a collaboration called AIDS 3D. Do you remember these guys? Yeah, I mean, I remember the name, but I don't remember <laughs> anything else apart from the name. Early 2000s, I think they're Americans living in Berlin. And I, I watched like, this is so like dated, I watched like a Nowness documentary, like uh-huh. a little five minute film on them. And they made all that, they made sculpture, but they made all of it just to take photos of it. So some uh, of it would only hold up for like yeah. five minutes. And then they started getting invited to show the work as sculpture. So it's kind of like proto post internet. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah, they were very like post-internet before that kind of phrase was invented but this idea that they like made all this work for the internet and they suddenly had to like I don't know fill it out or something or like mm. fill up the space behind it that mm. they'd left when they'd taken the photos made me laugh it's it's tricky though isn't it because I mean I still feel like especially because some of the things that I'm researching at the moment are really not to do with the internet yeah you know um, and it kind of makes you because even let's say with like with uh, the empathy deck Yes, it happens on Twitter, but is that you know m- most people now experience Twitter through their phones? Is that yeah, okay. the internet? Y- you know, it, I almost feel like that's this kind of weird monolithic thing. Um, what I've kind of always been interested in is finding different ways to to broadcast and to share things which draw on a history of a of co-presence in some way of liveness. Mm. So that could be live, like like we are now, or like an artist talk. Or a workshop, like I used to run the educational workshops, and I still run workshops as part of my my work as an oh, artist. Really? Yeah, like um, this um, screen cleaning. I'm gonna I'm gonna do that for you afterwards. I've, I've brought my wipes with okay, me. Okay. <laughs> so you know, there are these other ways of being kind of like temporarily co-present with people, and Twitter is one way. Yeah. Because things are happening in a kind of live way, um, but you know then you've got kind of older formats like book publishing mm. which is also a way that your thing can can be distributed mm. you can release it and it kind of goes out into the world through these networks so so actually that's the that's the kind of analogy that that I I'm kind of interested in is is looking at these different modes of sharing and different ways that that can happen and create a, a, a liveness or yeah. a feeling of presence together yeah, I mean, just I mean, just to, to stay on the book again. I was just mm. thinking that when I'm when I was thinking about the the book, I was thinking about it in terms of personal data and mm. things collected about you on the internet. But actually, it's an investigation of the book form, mm-hmm. the ghostwriter, mm-hmm. like all these older kind of technologies or Absolutely. infrastructure, whatever you want to. And formats. Yeah, 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 sure. For different formats. I mean, that's a format, not just in the sense of like a book and its distribution is a format. But even the celebrity memoir, the yeah. ghost-written memoir, all of these, they're also an existing cultural format, which exists in our culture. They might not in another one. They're mm. culturally, they're kind of culturally specific as well. Did you read the, uh, I forgot the guy's name, but the, um, the London Review of Books published this, this uh, long article about the guy who was meant to be Julian Assange's, oh. like, biographer. But it just, it's actually just like a... Um, it's just a tale of like complete failure to create a traditional a traditional book and it just mm. doesn't happen and and the outcome in the That's end is funny. this long essay about the failure of the book yeah 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 it's super interesting because obviously again he's a he's a person who is known for stuff that isn't really about him as like an individual mm. but with this celebrity star culture turns him into this kind of point of reference or a symbol for something That's else interesting and maybe this is the thing it's like with something like that it's it, it's it's kind of like not so much about the book 
but about uh, about this kind of meta narrative, mm. this meta text, and that's the bit that I've always been really interested in is like mm. this sense of how the the, the meta narrative around things could become the actual narrative, if mm. you see what I mean. So yeah, the the book again it creates a kind of narrative, it kind of creates an, a, a text around the book itself, which also part of that is to kind of question what what we mean by a book anyway and what that you know as you were saying before like all of the questions that that, that brings up in terms of you know who's written it who's it for mm. what what is the function of a book and the same i think with some of the the ways that i certainly more in older work how i worked with something like facebook you know mm. part of that again is like what is this platform of facebook who's it for how you know who's profiting from it how does it generate stuff through participation yeah but yeah i mean this is what i meant about becoming more cynical about this stuff because mm. with facebook i just try not to think about it too much when i use it. yeah <laughs> obviously if you've dedicated yourself to really thinking about it it might make you i don't know not want to use it or well i think certainly like in the early days when i was doing things like life and adwords and those things i mean i remember having to explain to people why i was doing it and people not understanding yeah so i think there was at that mo at that point but i think now pretty much everybody un uh, uh, kind of understands what the what the nature of the exchange is let's yeah. say um and or then that there is an exchange at all right? or the, like, yeah i but again i think most people kind of know now that you know it's down to the profiling it's down to the fact that you know you are the it's your information which makes these platforms free that is the nature of the exchange but again arguably that existed in an older model through tv you know that was the model as like that as that video you know tv delivers people it's all kind of about that is that you you're watching and you're being delivered to the advertisers mm. so it's not really any different but it took a bit but it, it is different in the sense that your particular profile can be picked up and you know there's a sense in which you make sense as a particular kind of consumer citizen within a, a particular demographic mm. and and so on and so forth whereas tv advertising kind of got as close as like depending on the time of day or the program <laughs> yeah. it would be showing you either like toys or you know beer yeah commercials yeah um tell us about the screen cleaning workshops yeah i mean um it, it's it's funny because i think like before you were saying that quite often um the, the things that is that you actually see of my work is this uh, is this kind of point of the interface and um i suppose i was interested in that that interface being something that's really quite tactile and that's kind of close to your body and kind of the the intimacy of the of um, those devices, um, not so the touch screen, right? Is yeah, yeah, the touch the touch screen, but ju but just generally all the all the, I mean, because I've also done it with kind of cleaning laptops and other kind of devices. It's just kind of making an analogy between the the in the intimate data of that's kind of on these devices through you that could be traced back to you and then these this kind of intimate dirt i guess that is that you leave on your yeah. uh, on any device that you use and i was interested in dirt as this kind of encrypted medium which it can't tell you it can't tell you what happened but it can yeah. tell you that there was presence it's like a so this metadata idea again I guess. yeah in a in a sense that but of course uh, but um, um, so, so the cleaning of it was this uh, again this gesture of like um, what what in, instead of an artist kind of trying to let's say grab attention and trying to kind of 
get you to look at their stuff or kind of like making big gestures, uh, big performative gestures that take up space and noise, could there be a, a way of doing something, working with this kind of tactile interface, which was more about almost like providing a service or kind of being helpful or caring for something and, you know, uh, yeah, like it, it kind of putting the artist in a different position. Um, so what would you what what actually takes place in that is it performance or is it a workshop or it's more like a workshop but I also do it just when I've kind of met up with people that I clean their phones for them uh, and all their laptops um, but I've also done it at like Wising Art Centre I cleaned all of the uh, all of their devices so like their phones their, you know the computers the keyboards personal laptops phones um, and then with that one I then used the the I actually because I because I did it on uh, cloth I embroidered them so it was kind of about like mm. trying to take readings off these marks so using the marks of the dirt as if they had meaning uh, as if there was something that could be interpreted from them a bit like, yeah. like reading kind of coffee grounds or something which yeah, is what yeah. my Greek grandmother used to do yeah um so that kind of you know and that kind of connects to like forms of divination as well like I wrote in that rituals piece of so that sense of of how you read patterns and meaning into chaos and kind of nonsense and looking for some kind of signal yeah so all of those things were at play but at the same time um i mean one of my main inspirations for it was emir lalademanukele's work on maintenance art okay and cleaning um, this is the feminist artist from the Se- 70s i think that's when she was kind of that's when she did this project i think and she was based with the new york New York Sanitation That's it, yeah. Agency, or I don't know what it's called, but yeah, I just saw her. I just saw a big solo show of hers at oh, wow. the Queen's Museum in New York, and it was great. Yeah, it's re- it's quite far out. It took like two hours to get there, but it was <laughs> really great. I think I think it's still on for a while. Um, so yeah, she. I mean, that she did this project called Touch Sanitation, where she shook the hands with like eight thousand five hundred workers from the sanitation department. Mm. But you know, I think maybe just before that, she'd been doing these uh, works where she would just like clean the museum stairs mm. and clean the kind of caskets and uh, of thing, you know, of like the vitrines or whatever, um, and lo- lots of stuff around kind of making visible the normally invisible labour of maintaining stuff yeah, rather than the kind of the very visible gestures of like a big painting, let's say. But you're turning that inside out a little bit because if she was if she was responding to an infrastructural setup, which is like, yeah, a whole team of people dedicated to Cleaning City, mm. you're kind of offering the cleaning service of something that a very small amount of people do, which is like, yeah, polishing your... Mm. touchscreen device mm. this very kind of tiny gesture of cleanliness that yeah i definitely don't i mean i probably should my keyboard's really dirty but yeah that which I is what people always say really yeah because it always because no well because no, but again i mean this is the thing that i'd i'd at uh the first time i did it as a workshop was at, at the royal standard in liverpool as part of a project with auto italia called on coping which actually is kind of the final part of it is launching like next week. Oh, okay, great. Because um, we also did a residency last year in, in Finland. And um, so it's kind of looking at these ideas of, of uh, coping and coping mechanisms and methods. And um, um, my contribution to that was this like workshop where you, it's not just that you, because uh, I wasn't cleaning everybody's work, everybody's devices, but I had all of the kit there and I had these kind of embroidered cloths which had different like instructions on them or different words and then we were just passing around the cloths and cleaning our devices and at the same time I was asking them to send me deleted stuff off their 
devices. Mm, okay. So there's kind of making this analogy between having to stay on top and maintain um, things like storage and space yeah. and filing and archiving and all of that, how this becomes this extra work, which nobody tells you is work, but it yeah. kind of is because you need to find time to do it. Or things come in and automate that. Mm. Um, although I don't think you can automate the cleaning of a phone. Uh, not the physical, but someone was, mm. I just met someone who said they had a who I phone, like a Chinese brand. Oh, yeah. And he said that every... Monday or something, like a little message pops up and says, this app is using this much space. These files have not been used for a while. And you can just press a button, it deletes everything. From yeah, you. there you go. So it's like the automation of mm. like, yeah, I don't know, of administrating s- your phone. Yeah, <laughs> of administrating <laughs> like the kind of micro memory like, chunks and kind of trying to free them up. Yeah. And then, and then that's the thing, then like running a workshop where everybody can just sit and like clean their phones and just delete stuff off their f- you know so there's this weird way of just kind of creating a space for that that kind of stuff which we never have time to do and which isn't really considered work like yeah. you couldn't be like oh well, I was late <laughs> I didn't have time to do work because I was cleaning my desktop but I mean it takes bloody ages I was yeah. doing it yesterday it was like fucking 45 <laughs> minutes to clean up my files you yeah. know like that is work and how does this so on coping obviously uh, is a is a is a wider project and and that's more about self care and like not 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 only but that was part of it It was it was kind of looking at i think when it started in 2015 part of the things that we were interested in was like um i guess in tandem with a lot of what auto italia are interested in in terms of like how do artists work what is artistic labor Mm. um where do they work and for whom um so i think that was kind of where the on coping thing was looking at was like what are the different ways that people also make sense of the Mm. world so that's why there was like a you know, a kind of a horoscope astrology reading with Louisa Martin or, you know, there's things in which it's to do with how do we, how do we address kind of being able to take care of ourselves, not just personally, which is normally what self-care relates to, mm. uh, or rather, sorry, self-help relates to, but also kind of collectively mm. and which, you know, which I think those questions have only got kind of more and more urgent um, in terms of how do you, how, how do you, how do you care collectively for things that that matter and make mm. space for them, particularly if a dominant culture doesn't consider them important? Um, and what kind of things are you talking about? Well, I mean, I suppose, uh, yeah, if you read the text that I wrote, that the one on kind of rituals and self-care and... Um, you know, I'd put, I'd kind of quoted from like a very a very widely read um, blog post by Sarah Ahmed where she's talking. You know, she's also quoting from another very well quoted Audrey Lord uh, text about self care not being an indulgence and it actually being yeah. a radical act for those who are non dominant in society, whom like the existing systems have have not considered important enough to care for. Mm. Um, so then to, you know, so Audre Lorde writing as a black um, lesbian feminist was, you know, kind of making the, 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 the point that if she didn't take care of herself, then she couldn't expect the system, the, the existing social structure to take care of her. So that yeah. was a radical act. It was, yeah, a, yeah. it was a point of pushing against it. But of course, you know, self-help, especially in the way it, in the way it is now, is very much kind of marketed certainly as something which is for the individual yeah and how and i suppose some of the questions that i have is like how do we how do we get past that particularly when in my work there is quite a lot around kind of therapeutic processes and um 
you know, I've done things like unsent letters, but even the diary form, the journaling, the kind of collaging, like all of those things are kind of related to like that sphere of self-help. Mm, yeah. And how does that not become just kind of solipsistic and kind of like, well, I'm just going to make sure that I'm okay and the world can burn, you know, <laughs> which is like Zizek's and many other people's beef with like meditation or kind of Western Buddhism. Yeah. Is that it kind but, of... but you, you meditate, you were saying you were going Yes. There. Yeah, I do meditate. Yeah. Silent retreat. Yeah. And how does that... So that's, a, I mean, maybe that's an interesting point of mm. uh, like where you're... I don't know. I don't even want to say that, but I was about to say real life. But like mm. your your day to day mm -hmm. life, maybe you meditate mm -hmm. every day, or maybe you do it once a week. But kind of rubs up directly against the kind of artwork you make. Absolutely. I mean, and that's the thing. I'm really, I am really interested in that. Like, how does that? How is exactly that that space? How does that become the work? Again, it's a kind of going back to what I was saying before about this kind of meta text, like rather than that being like all the stuff that's around the work, that it actually becomes the work. And ironically, it's almost like the stuff that you have to do in order to be sane enough to be able to do the work, kind of somehow making that into the work. So there's yeah. a kind of like tautological, a kind of circular argument there in some way, um, so, so a kind of logic game yeah. of some sort. But have you... Uh, made, already made work with or about meditation or are you I have made some stuff with about meditation actually like directly about meditation okay. where I did this um I on the uh, meditation app that I use I mean you, you know it's just got bells and whatever and you time it but um what does it what does it do explain it so you just you you, you have presets and you have a choice of bells and you can put it for like 20 minutes for however long you want oh uh, okay and it's um you know it's very useful it's just something you use every day it's got like a little diary that you can log a diary at the end you know with any kind of insights that you've had and you know so you can put interval bells it makes sound of whatever's kind for a certain length of time so you don't have to like look at your clock exactly or have an like, alarm oh, how long have i been here <laughs> yeah 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 completely yeah okay, that's yeah. what it's for so it's just for timing essentially but it's just a little bit fancier because you can choose the kind of bells yeah and uh you know. what's your preferred sound um oh, i could actually play it for you but yeah go on yeah um what did it so i mean I, I do different ones so that i'm not always just doing the same thing yeah does that happen? Other... does your meditation kind of end up becoming like a root yeah like it does things you end up thinking about on trying not to think about or whatever it is well yeah that you find yourself just kind of doing the same thing definitely that's interesting isn't it where you where you're like you 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 have a little like a little routine with what you do this is the 30 minute one um but it kind of ding like bongs at the beginning. It's quite loud. This is called Deng Dengzi or something. I don't know. Okay. But there is all different than it does other things, you know. So I mean, there's. I think there's a really interesting relationship to between something like meditation in the West mm. and your work, because that. So. After a little while of listening to, not listening, watching videos and reading your writing and stuff, I kind of came up with this idea about your work, which is that it's about the failure of data to kind of capture people, mm -hmm. which is like simple, but kind of it seems to be at the centre of lots of things that you do. Mm. And there's a kind of really, there's almost like a kind of religious sense about it. I don't mean mm -hmm. religious in sen the sense of there being like a god or you being religious. Yeah, no, no, you're absolutely right. The sense of that. there being like a kind of spirit or soul mm -hmm. that, again, in, in quotation marks, that cannot be captured by mm -hmm. the internet or by images or by representations of things. Mm. 
but that obviously doesn't mean that that data isn't meaningful and, and can be extra- meaning can be extrapolated mm. from it, which is what you do mm. with that data, which is why why it's an interesting kind of uh, artistic practice. And I guess with meditation or the the critique of meditation in the West is that it's this like reified kind of alienated version of I don't know a Buddhist practice. Mm-hmm. Um, but that also doesn't mean that meditation can't have meaning in the West. And so there seems to be this kind of like mm. direct correlation between, I mean, obviously mm. they're probably linked anyway, in many other ways anyway, between your work and the kind of, yeah, the, the ritualistic practice mm. of meditation. But how do you, what do you think about the critique? I always wonder about like yoga and, mm. and meditation. They're, they're obviously very useful and like kind of beautiful ways of, I don't know, being or something like, they're obviously very relaxing. They obviously like help people stay calm and, whatever whatever people use it for but they also are part of this strange kind of commodification of like, yeah. i don't know behaviors or yeah no i mean in, in a weird way i think this like the the whole meditation thing is really so much at the back it's this kind of background thing to to all of the stuff that i do because there's there's many there's many things which i kind of relate it to in terms of this idea that there's something ineffable Something that you that can't be described, that can't be represented, that can't be put, that can't be captured, mm-hmm. as you said, and that you know traditionally that was the something religious, something that went beyond this kind of profane world, mm. and you know I think more and more that's something that I've realised is there is some kind of quest in me, like some kind of longing for that, or to you know to kind of understand it, um, and one of the ways that that has been kind of understood or spoken about is that there there could be some kind of direct experience which isn't mediated and so much of my work is kind of about this thing of like could is there any way that we could have communication that was unmediated but of course that we can't mm. unless you're in somebody else's brain mm. and like love comes pretty close to that mm. that moment of being like but also you know, if you read the saints and the mystics and like unity with with like some kind of divine uh, entity or spirit, that is when mediation colla- like disappears, dissolves. So there's this, you know, it's a kind of fantasy in a way, really, that there could be some mode of perfect communication where nothing was lost. When, of course, as soon as it's com- something go- is put into words or images or anything or even drawing, something's lost. Mm. And there's that, I think, like a lot of kind of what I'm doing is that thing of like, that thing that that is that is lost you know that you can that is this kind of it's it's always absent but or it's 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 something that kind of could be present but it's it's always absent or it can't be grasped and that is the same with let's say like the algorithms or you know kind of finding the place where they 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 don't capture it they mm. don't and that's not to reaffirm the sense in which it was like oh it shows that you know we have a human soul which computers could never understand but maybe there there is like slightly that's kind of what it points to as well or I think it's so far like that uh, I always a lot of the philosophy I'm interested in is all, all about kind of the the failure of human subjectivity to mm. capture objects or to kind of mm. fully understand or make sense of things. Mm. And um, and it's so funny that like for someone who's interested in that or kind of even recognises that that is an issue as as you've just talked about chooses art something they would want to do which is essentially the creation over and over again of like inadequate representations of things yeah can't that can't like achieve their stated goal of communicating directly to a i don't know another person or an audience yeah 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 that's funny 
But you're also saying, I mean, just generally about the kind of the critique of like the of oh, yoga yeah. and meditation. I think you know more more generally the the thing that I think is kind of wrong with that, or rather, the the issue with it is is that the way that it comes over in the West is that um, meditation is good because it's useful, mm. and you know that's kind of not the point of it. When you approach it as something which, like, I'm going to meditate because it's going to make me a good CEO or because it's going to make me really organised, you're kind of missing the point. It's mm. Well, the way that I understand it is, like, it's more about wanting to connect to that ineffable thing which isn't useful, which isn't cannot be instrumentalised, mm. cannot be made profit-generating, either for you or your, you know, the things connected to you, cannot be converted into, like, symbolic or actual capital. Mm. That's the kind of... That's what makes meditation special. Mm. Um, but, of course, the way the way it's been sold in the West is, like, well, you know, we need neuroscientific evidence that this shit works or, like, you know that is part of becoming more efficient and it's actually much more tied into a sense of higher performance which completely ties into existing models and imperatives around becoming more flexible more adaptable you know yeah. more efficient a better worker more responsible for yourself less uh, mentally unhealthy etc cetera, etc cetera. Um, and it's very hard to get away from that because those are the dominant kind of themes in our culture so if you're doing, and so most of the time when you tell people you meditate, you go, most people say, oh, that's, oh, you're so good. Either yeah, you're so good yeah, or yeah, that's yeah. so good, swiftly followed by, I should do that. Yeah. And I always say, why should you, why? You shouldn't do that. I mean, if you want to, do it. Sure. But you shouldn't. It's not like, because you should do that, but because you're, but you're not, because you're probably lazy. Like, that's a yeah. very, that is so part of a kind of Protestant work ethic thing. Like, yeah. you know. It's another thing that I should be doing and I'm kind of probably flawed and sinning because I'm not, you know, and it's like, ah, oh, another thing to feel bad about, like, yeah. So it's interesting, so I um, recently started doing, I have quite a bad back problem at the moment, um, and I recently started doing yoga, but just from YouTube, and mm. and it's really funny doing the videos with a very explicit, It's my aim with yoga is just to, like, stretch my back, it's not mm. at all to, like do anything else although that other stuff does come mm -hmm. when you're stretching for 20 minutes or whatever but like watching the like high point of commodified self-care culture which is like californian women in like like totally. yeah. on youtube with like yeah. multi-camera setups and they're all on instagram and it's like it's yeah. all connected and they've got like a yeah and also i mean workshops that they run yeah, and dvds exactly. well maybe not dvds so much anymore but yeah yeah and it's exactly really interesting because i'm only i'm like i'm not even at that level with yoga i'm not even like oh i think it would be good for me to relax and you know i'm just like i just need to stretch my back every day yeah and so nothing from it really phases me but it also doesn't really bother me like mm. i'm not bothered by the fact that it's commodified it's still the same physical movements and it's mm. still relaxing and it still helps with my back so there's a kind of weird balance you can find within it i guess mm -hmm. which i guess you have to find because otherwise you'd be constantly while you're trying to meditate thinking about the commodified nature of, yeah, yeah, yeah. of buddhism in yeah. the west or something yeah and how, how do you think that'll pan out when you go to this silent retreat mm. well i mean funnily enough that i think the person running it is a westerner i mean because there is also something else to be said here about cultural appropriation mm, yeah you definitely. know like to what extent is uh, you know, is that the popularity of yoga and meditation, all of that actually a form of kind of cultural um, appropriation and taking from another culture and making quite a lot of money out of it. Thanks very much. You know, um, which I guess when when you go over there, uh, maybe that maybe that's different. And I mean, I'm clearly going over there as Where a tourist. Where are you tourist. going? Sorry, I don't even know. I'm going to Sri Lanka. Sri Lanka. Okay. 
So, you know, I'm clearly going there as a tourist, you know, even though it does say this is not a relaxation holiday. <laughs> does it? Yeah. That's really nice. Which is funny, which I was glad to see, actually, because, you know, again, I, I find it, I don't normally travel for, for when, which, in a way that's not connected to work in any way. I was going to ask you, can you take holidays? Are you good Not really, no. I mean, I do, you know, I go to Greece a lot. But I'm yeah. always working when I'm there. Oh, right. Well, that's not always. But, you know, there, there, there are sometimes I don't work. But, you know, I think this is something that I've, I've struggled with a lot. Um, because it's because also because of the nature of my work, there's almost like there's always some way that it could become work. Yeah. And, be, you know, you could easily. And, and that often happens to me, like something that I will be genuinely doing just uh, or genuinely something I will be doing as part of my, a part of my everyday life will then be like oh actually i could use that in some way because like for example recently i've been uh, after um after the my recent breakup of like kind of self-consoling by calling myself because one of my friends had been had, had been um, leaving me whatsapp messages because we we're both so busy we could never actually speak to each other she's in she's in uh, spain and so she would just leave me messages uh, like 10 minutes long you know quite oh, long wow, wow quite long messages and then you'd listen to them afterwards on whatsapp and then i would send her one back or you know just be like, That's yeah, really I'm okay. It's like a yeah. Or yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really not, like just very long voicemails, essentially. And then I started just doing them like to myself, imagining, you know, if I was to play this back, you know, what what do I need to hear right now? And then this is, and then I was like, oh fuck! Now I've got like banks and banks of these recordings, and I can use them in some way, you know. And but it, I didn't that... set out from the outset and be like, oh, I've got yeah, this idea for a new piece of work. Of course. But what does that feel like? That moment when you realise it's something you've been doing. Yeah, in your mm. everyday life. Or just, it doesn't even matter, but without thinking about it, yeah. it's something you're going to present to other people. What mm. does it feel like, that switch? Mm. Is there must be like, there must be two sides to it, I guess. Well, it's funny because I remember people asking me about this with life in AdWords and I never really had that. It was like, well, no, I just kind of, ca you know, once I realised that, oh, my diary could, oh, yeah, I can use it in this way. I didn't start writing my diary any differently. Yeah. But um, I, I think I did at some point, maybe with the empathy deck when I was editing it, because mm. uh, there was that moment because that was more the actual words that would be used uh, if you see what I mean yes okay so it didn't yeah. inspire a piece of work it was like this block of text yeah. which was personal is now going to be public but at the same time there was diary text that I was writing while I was also doing the editing of the diary so yeah. I was like editing stuff from 2012 but at the same time writing my 2016 diary mm. and I found sometimes when I was writing the 2016 diary I found myself almost writing a little bit in a way of like oh someone's going to read this whereas obviously the <laughs> The, the the earlier stuff I I hadn't been, but yeah. I think maybe the question is more like is there some you, you, you know which is kind of what you're asking as well is which is like is there a moment of kind of self consciousness or something where yes. that sense of like oh this is this is going to be seen or so, uh, and the only again going back to the book that's the only time I really had that a sense of like exposure or of like yeah. fuck I'm 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 visible now in a way that I hadn't planned for yeah of course. I hadn't I hadn't anticipated that sensation. Um, and that was that was very very new. I suddenly felt very very self conscious. Yeah. And Do you think that would ever stop you making this kind of work? Yeah, I think. Well, I think with that it almost did. Yeah, there was a real stepping back from it and not wanting to, not wanting to put stuff out there. And in fact, that's where I started. Like there was a long period after that of kind of exploring much more to do with like absence and mm. like. Um, and non-exposure and like mm. a, and kind of dark or non-visible spaces and uh, opacity and kind of encryption that was much more after that mm. and i still yeah i still have that sense now i don't use 
I've never gone back to using Facebook book in the way I did. Mm. Like right right until the point of like reading the the text of the outage, I kind of was, and and I, I still don't. Oh, so right. it definitely had some, and also, I mean, as you probably know, I got together with the writer of the book. Yeah. Oh, right. Ah, I didn't realise it. Was yeah. Around. I thought yeah. you guys were maybe together before. No, 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 no. He was a complete stranger, and then we got together, and that you know, so so that was a real like concrete way that that you know, the a piece of work completely changed my life. That is that is very in a way that was inseparable from it. I mean, obviously, like once you've been in a relationship for a while, you're not saying they go, "Wow, remember the way we met?" I mean, yeah, you know, everybody has to meet somehow, but yeah, but it is that um, what you're talking about where your loop kind of folds back into yeah. your life. That is very much a, a good example of that. Where the but there it was like the distance kind of collapses to the point that it became quite like oh, that yeah. that was a bit un unmanageable. <laughs> like, I mean, obviously, you're not with this person now, but was it was it a, a a weird part of your relationship or was it like a kind of beautiful thing where he'd kind of seen all this stuff about you so he kind of knew lots of things I don't know yeah I think it's kind of I think it's like somewhere in between I mean yeah. I guess he he being a very pragmatic person was just kind of more like well you know people meet through work all the time and it's like <laughs> it's kind of true Yeah. It's whereas true, yeah. other people would be like wow that's so romantic or yeah. other people would be like oh that's a bit weird like Stockhausen what's it called Stockholm uh, Stockhausen <laughs> Stockholm <laughs> syndrome of like where you give somebody something and then you feel somehow kind of um, like they've beholden. got some beholden yeah. or that they've got something on you or something but who knows? Yeah. <laughs> so what are you working on now? Well, um, the the empathy deck is getting a little makeover. Oh, is it? Yeah. I'm just going to um, put in some new cards, some new diary text, and we're just going to tweak the tweak some of the responses and some of the uh, some of the, for, the the ways that it formats um, text. So it's gonna. It was initially going to be offline at the end of the the uh, welcomes bedlam show which is what it was commissioned for yeah but because uh, it's it's also going to have an outing in sydney later this year um the welcome are very kindly like footed the bill for keeping oh, it alive right. and giving it a little uh, makeover and um some of the other stuff i'm i'm looking at at the moment going back to the voice recording thing this is kind of what this was like in tandem with that was looking at um at the codification of emotional valence Okay. Even if you can't understand what is being said, just the car the, the the voice as this carrier of emotion all by itself. Okay, so the as way someone's speaking, yeah, carrying emotion. Like, so if you're speaking yeah. in a really deadpan, like you know, basically ways that vo just the the voice itself, even if you if even with no semantic content, it can be read for for something, and obviously, you know, how that is then kind of being commodified and 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 so on and so forth. So. This is something I also want to work with the maybe the same developer or somebody else, somebody who works yeah. with this kind of stuff in some way. And another thing that I've been doing a lot of research into at the moment and might have a little outing at the uh, Auto Italia show is around um, like fluorescing uh, UV protective markings. And the ways that they like the traces that people it's used in like it's used in crime detection of like um, th this UV stuff. I mean, particularly there's this DNA U UV stuff, which it tags you in some way and you can't get it off. And it like and it and it indelibly links you to the scene of the crime. So again, there's this it's kind like of tactile or something in a yeah or... yeah or on metal. Um, yeah. And then it's on your there's grease that goes on metal and outdoor stuff. And so I've been doing lots of research into that and. Um, and uh, and then again, using this this th thing which is kind of invisible, but then under yeah. certain conditions becomes readable. Yeah. But it's also carried by the body, and there are these kind of physical traces. And how could that be? Um, 
you know, yeah, how, how can that kind of track you in some way? So yeah. it's like, again, to do with kind of identification and legibility and under which kind of regimes of like visibility do you become visible and for whom yeah, and, yeah, and yeah. why and, and who's making money out of it and so on. Yeah. So these are some of the things I'm kind of researching at the moment. That's great. There, there seemed to be like a, again, it's a text, I can't remember which one, but I think you wrote something like a lot's been written about the huge material infrastructure that underpins the internet but but i but you're you're still most um driven to investigate what happens when that kind of interacts with the person mm, yeah and how is that how are those kind of uh, in, institutions and infrastructures of, often kind of um you know acting violently against bodies in terms of how they control them and tell them where to go and and how that's kind of internalized as a kind of like internal violence of mm. like this is what I can say or this is where I can't go or this is you know how I should perform and this is what my voice needs to sound like all of these things which are kind of um you know again culturally contingent and but they but they have these kind of real material effects on on mm. bodies and voices and touch and trace and gesture and uh the way that you walk or you know what i mean like even like if you think about like class structures like yeah that that creates particular things in in you you know which you kind of and is it always is it always violence i i'm just thinking about about the kind of implications of the word violence mm. and it's and it's um and the, and the class i don't know the way we kind of talk about interactions with large abstract entities like the state or, mm. or I don't know, large multinational corporations, like is that interaction, as far as you understand it mm. through your work, like always, always a form of violence, or is there are there some like I don't know, like loving interactions between mm. between institutions and subjects? I don't know. Yeah, I guess mm. so. Yeah, mm. I mean, I guess one example would be what you were talking about, like the 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 cleaning your screen the caring. yeah 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 there's still a caring yeah. relationship even if that is underpinned by whatever yeah. global capitalism yeah. or well i mean maybe that's a kind of another question which i've heard other people kind of asking recently and maybe a couple of years ago as well it's like you know is is there some kind of space space for like for love in the sense of again not not heterosexual heteronormative one-on-one -on -one, you know love that's only like me and my boyfriend or like me and my girlfriend um or me and my kid is there a space for 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 love and for caring which mm. can't immediately be instrumentalized and kind yeah. of yeah um and that's yeah that's a question as well like a post-human love or like a love that isn't yeah sent well even the human love but just this, does it have to i don't know like is that is it is that is is there some kind of um can there be some kind of force of love which counters the, the the violence but that isn't that doesn't have to be centered on a nuclear family mm. or you know i have donna haraway's yeah exactly i was thinking of donna haraway have you read that? no we, um, the, the 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 recent the yeah. most recent um no which is all about kinship yeah exactly i mean i've read i've seen i've read some of her texts like the one that was on the e-flux or the tentacular yes. ones yeah, and, yeah. and her video and you know well for example so there you go that, those are like forms of love and caring which don't have to be centered on even another human mm. um you know what is the what is the nature of that type of love or like what what is it a force for in, yeah. in, in the world yeah there's been loads of i mean this is just a, a crazy tangent but I, 
uh, I was quite interested in like octopuses mm. a long time ago. All right, well, there you go. And then, Tentacular ones. Yeah, but then they've, and then, and how intelligent they are. Mm. And uh, there's an amazing article, which I can't remember the writer's name, but I'll send it to you. It's from like, it was in um, Dexter Sinister's Serving Library, mm-hmm. which is like an archive of uh, essays they commissioned. I don't know, probably like 10 years ago or something. Mm. Anyway, point being that, like, I read that and was like, wow, that's such an incredible article. And in the last, like, I don't know, like, few years, there's just been so many... There's, like, two books about octopuses really? and intelligence. And then, obviously, like, they're used as a kind of reference point yeah. about non-human intelligence because they, unlike chimpanzee intelligence or something, like, it's evolved from a different way. It's, totally, it's yeah. a form of intelligence that's, like... But is this part of this interest also in kind of like alien intelligence or even like we were kind of vaguely tweeting about like other forms of intelligence which aren't necessarily cognitive. So what is a bodily intelligence? Yeah. And like um, Catherine Hales, I mean, I remember watching last year some of her talks and I think she calls it non-cognitive there's probably more to it, but kind of basically like non-cognitive intelligence is where, where it's not, you know, it's not the thinking the thinking that the brain does of that kind of rational but but there's still an intelligence there or like um you know mushrooms and fungi yeah who that have some kind of intelligence or even a plant that knows to move towards the light like yeah that they kind of they're engaged in some kind of they have some kind of agency that's maybe the the i I think it just links to a, a wider interest in kind of non-human and post-human um, forms of agency and intelligence. You know? Yeah, it's the decentered idea, isn't it? It's like the first, you know, a, a very big part of ethics is about empathy to mm. other people, mm. right? Like, and 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 if you're politicised in any way, then you start thinking about, like, how ethics applies not just to you and your group, but, like, wider implications and stuff. And I guess that's just spreading out to include non-humans as well which can only be a good thing yeah well that's it so maybe these are this these uh, forces of empathy and yeah and uh and and caring and and love in that sense that if there there could be ways of kind of creating affinities and solidarities between like previously unconnected entities yeah. and you know which, yeah. which could be a force for, for good in the world we live in Ah, well, that was um, that was Erica Scorti. Uh, thanks to Erica for coming down to the studio and speaking to me. Um, really enjoyed that chat, and I hope you did as well. So, thank you. Go to badvibesclub.co.uk to see all the podcasts, but also our whole archive of performances and lectures and other work and also to see the upcoming events um, the first one of which is on June the 2nd and June the 3rd at Open School Easter Margate okay uh, I'll, I'll see you when I see you thanks <laughs>